As I got another rhyme, another rhythm for y'all to listen. I'm never quitting on my mission. I'ma roll with what I'm giving. Got some ambition, this new addition, filling positions. Looking at the void in myself and feeling what's missing. Better watch the way you're going. Better go in the right direction. In the moment you stressing, but you gon' be counting blessings. And I know that for certain. Keep on working, open curtains. Haters swerving, cause they ain't ready for your final version. I'm never gon' give up, give up. Fall down, I just gotta get up, get up, yeah. You're listening to the Tom Fickley Show on WNHH LP 103.5 FM, your home for community radio. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Good morning. And it's a good morning today here in the East Coast in New Haven on Monday, November 7th. It's also tomorrow in, in Australia. So I, I mentioned that because uh, some of our shows, if I can just express my hubris, are indeed timeless. And the, show, and the show today, when you listen to it, either live or after the fact, uh, we're going to talk about facts. We're going to talk about some theory, but also some applications. But the point I'm trying to make is we're going to discuss the human condition uh, from a contemporary standpoint, from a therapeutic standpoint. But also all of my shows are based and embedded in this, this human condition framework of how do we improve ourselves, become a better species, become better humans. Uh, specifically, uh, today's show is going to be focusing on literally groundbreaking discoveries in the treatment of psychiatric disorders. Let me repeat that, groundbreaking discoveries in the treatment of psychiatric disorders. And this is not to say that I'm going to be used as an example of a, psychi- a person with a psychiatric disorders, but by the end of the show, you might find that, that I'm, a, I'm a candidate for ketamine. So uh, groundbreaking discoveries in the treatment of psychiatric dis- disorders. It's it said that uh, a certain person who's on the show today, Dr. John Crystal, said, often one groundbreaking discovery leads to others. And these are the words of, of uh, Dr. John Crystal. He's, I won't say he's a Moses, but uh, in terms of the discovery, the application, the, the research, the potential of this new uh, therapeutic uh, intervention, folks, this is a very his- historic and historic show. Dr. Crystal is with us. Dr. Crystal is the chair of the Department of Psychiatry at Yale University and chief of psychiatry and behavioral health at Yale New Haven Hospital. We're joined by Reverend Dr. Leroy O. Perry, Jr. Reverend Perry, I had a chance to meet several decades ago. And in our youth, we uh, uh, were, were concerned with what does it mean to be, kind of be a, a whole and a sound and a prosperous individual when we were at the Yale Divinity School. And Dr. Perry has continued on that path about how do we improve the human condition? How do we improve the human condition? Dr. Perry is pastor of St. Stephen's Amy Zion Zion Church and cultural ambassador to the Yale Clinical Research Program. Uh, Reverend Perry and Dr. Crystal, welcome. Thank you, wonderful to be here. Thank you, Tom. And just to kind of just share just a little bit before we kind of put Dr. Crystal on the hot seat, but I'm sure he can handle it. Uh, He's chair of the Department of the Psychiatry at Yale University and chief of psychiatry in behavioral health, as I mentioned, of New Haven Hospital, and a leading expert not in, in the areas of, and folks kind of, these the words I'm going to mention, we hear these words time, and, but what does it mean to be a leading expert in the areas of alcoholism, post-traumatic stress disorder, schizophrenia, and depression research? So that's a lot, but he, he has deserved those titles, has worked in the vineyard, uh, and, and he has a lot to share. So Dr. Crystal, welcome, and you know, as, as a sidebar, maybe kind of a uh, People might be interested why I start off with this question, but I think they'll find the the answer to your answer to be illuminating. About um, tell us a little bit about your actually your father's story and how that has impacted your work in the field of psychiatry. Sure. Well, my father uh, was a psychiatrist, Henry Crystal, uh, who was a real inspiration to me in, uh, in in all kinds of ways in my life. He was born in Poland, and he. Um, uh, was uh, Jewish, uh, taken by the Nazis when he was about 13, uh, and after a while sent to uh, the death camps like Auschwitz. Uh, by the time he was 15 or 16 years old, he was the only surviving member of his family. By then, all of the other members of his family, parents, brother, had been killed. Uh, and um, after the war, uh, came to the United States with nothing um, and uh, uh, lived in the um, 
in the uh, basement of the general store that his aunt, who had moved to America, had set up in Detroit, Michigan, where, where I also grew up. And, um, and uh, he managed to get a scholarship to college and, and then to medical school. And he pursued a career in psychiatry. And, um, and his area that of special expertise was in treating the psychological consequences of, of uh, surviving the Holocaust, the, the, treating the concentration camp survivors. And, um, and, and that was in, in the um, 1950s and 1960s before we had a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. So in, in working with the concentration camp survivors, he and others laid the foundation for uh, how we in our country dealt with the returning Vietnam veterans who, whose experience in turn led to the establishment of the diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder in 1980. Mm -hmm. so, so my father's work was you know, really uh, an, an inspiration in so many ways for me and shaped my career. There, there, there are so many stories, uh, Dr. Crystal, about how the, the impact of, and influence of parents, but sometimes uh, uh, the daughters, the, the sons, they re rebel about the influence of, of, their, of their father. It seems to me you, you followed in the footsteps. Well, what was the, the cohesion or the attraction to kind yeah. of sustain that, that initiative? Well, I, you know, I rebelled in my own way. So my father was a psychoanalyst who focused um, uh, on the psychological experience of, of everybody that he was working with. And, um, and I thought that, that as I was studying psychology in college, I thought maybe that would be um, a, a direction I might pursue. But when I was a student in college, um, I became fascinated by the idea that the problems that, uh, of the people that I was interacting with at the time I was working in, in, uh, in uh, volunteering in clinics for uh, opiate addiction, that the idea that there was an underlying neurobiology that uh, was contributing to the problems that people were having and might be targeted uh, in new ways to yield new treatments, that that idea captivated me. Mm. And, and really, once I latched onto that idea, it really became the foundation of my work over the last, you know, that was probably 42 years ago. Mm. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> at this for a while and we're going to we're going to drill down we may not get a chance to cover every every day of those 40 years but certainly we're going to uh, chat uh, about your because you are indeed deservedly celebrated for the for leading the discovery of anti antidepressant effects of ketamine and before we go to that reverend perry i want to kind of go maybe off script and share share with us if you would and i'll, I'll talk a little slower to kind of give you a chance to to, to gird your loins about the impact of of either your, your father, your mother, or, or, or people in your life, because I think it's important for people to know that uh, as well in the same way that Dr. Crystal has shared. Uh, Tom, I, I, I'm fascinated even more so, Dr. Crystal, having heard the story of Auschwitz and your father's survival and success in, in such a, a prominent field. I, I, when I was a student, I read a book entitled, um, I think it's Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Yeah. who was in a concentration camp, and he tried to tell us how he was able to survive that. Uh, and, and so when I look at post-traumatic stress syndrome and I look at what African-Americans have gone through in the nation before ketamine <laughs> and before <laughs> antidepressants, they had, so this, this combination of faith and science here is, is remarkable. When I was a student at Yale, I... Tom and I did Tavistock, and I worked at the Orange Street Alcohol Clinic. But the idea was, what, can, what, what, what is it that we can help to empower people who, who suffer from um, depression, post-traumatic stress, uh, stress syndrome? So with, with, the, with the discoveries that you are making now, I'm just wondering, so one of my questions would be, that how, how do you see the impact of faith or a sense of a person's uh, individual will to survive 
based on love, based on faith, based on, I mean, they, it seems like they have to go together. I mean, you can give a person a drug, but if they don't want to live, if they don't, if, if, if they don't want to take it, if, if they're so messed up, it just seems that it doesn't really have the kind of effect that it would have if there's those other components. Yeah, well, it's a it's a it's a great question, and, and um, yeah, I don't I don't know if uh, Reverend Perry whether you met ever met the late uh, Steve Southwick, a psychiatrist here in New Haven, was actually uh, a student at, of uh, Victor Frankel's uh, uh, you know institute, and um, and and he 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 developed ideas about the foundations of human resilience. And belief in something larger than yourself um, and connection to that belief, the power of that connection, he felt, was a very important fundamental building block of, of human resilience. And, and um, when I think of my father's story, um, one, one of the things that he was saying was that there were times when he was very near death in in. And for example, he was on death marches uh, where they wouldn't feed you and you had to march for long periods of time. And if you dropped, they would just shoot you. And um, and he was um, in a very extreme state of um, starvation. And he would talk about how the belief that he mattered to somebody, he, in his case, he 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 held on to the idea that his that that he he uh, was connected to his mother that he had a, a strong relationship and that he knew that she loved him and that he counted for something and and somehow that belief for him helped him to keep going and, and instead of giving up and um, and it's these fundamental beliefs of of personal value and connection to to uh, something larger than yourself that often is so really extremely uh, meaningful. And, you know, to, to, to try to make a link to the, to the biology, the way that I've always approached, uh, the way that I think about ketamine and, and, and that, and antidepressant medications is that there are tools that people use to reinforce their resilience. And um, so that um, the medications, to the extent that people, you know, some people need to believe in the medications because they can't believe in anything else. But in a way, if, if they see that the medications are tools that they're using to help themselves achieve a better life, that that sometimes gets past some of the problems that people have with the idea of needing to take a medication in order to get better. Uh, Dr. Crystal, it kind of gets to elaborate a little, a little bit more, if you would, in terms of the, we're still in the early part of the show, we have about 40 more minutes, but, but what is, uh, you know, what, what is ketamine and how's it, how's it historically been used? And I guess, how's, how's it being used in the future? today and in the future. Sure. So, so ketamine um, was developed in the 1960s and as an anesthetic medication. And so you would think, well, an anesthetic medication is about as far from an antidepressant medication as you can get. Um, and, but um, in the early days, it, it is a, a cousin of a drug called psilocybin. And psilocybin is an abused drug, ketamine also to some extent an abused drug, but known as PCP or angel dust. But in the late 1950s, a, a psychiatrist uh, gave uh, a dose of PCP to uh, healthy people as they were trying to understand its properties and found that it, it had effects that were in some ways resembling uh, the symptoms of schizophrenia, but only transiently. But people didn't know how these drugs work. And so they really abandoned the psychopharmacology of this whole class of drugs, the psilocybin, which eventually became illegal, 
and then ketamine, which remained used as an anesthetic medication. In other words, putting people to sleep for surgery and also to suppress the pain associated with surgery. And, and what happened with ketamine was that in, in the 1980s, in other words, 30 years after the testing of these medications started, it wasn't for 30 years that people figured out how, mm. how these drugs worked in the brain. Mm. And, and that was a, about the time that I was beginning my career. And uh, and so when I joined the faculty and I was initially working in the area of schizophrenia, I discovered, you know, I discovered ketamine as a potentially useful tool to probe a, a chemical system in the brain. That chemical system of the brain is the main information highway of the brain. And it's, you might call it the glutamate system because it mm. uses glutamate as the main chemical messenger for communication. And up until that point, almost all of psychiatry research focused on on chemicals that um, were only accounted for maybe a few percentage of the synapses of the brain, but uh, have more familiar names like serotonin and uh, norepinephrine or noradrenaline or dopamine. And and, and when I started my research, I started focusing on glutamate, the main information highway, and use ketamine to probe that. And we decided to test the idea that the glutamate signaling was altered in, um, in depression. And in that process, that's how we discovered the rapid mm. antidepressant effects of ketamine. That was about 19... 97, 96, 97. And, um, and uh, the paper came out in 2000. Uh, and in 2019, almost 20 mm. years later, then the FDA approved S-ketamine, which is a mm. version of ketamine uh, that is uh, 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 approved by the FDA for, for the treatment of treatment-resistant depression. Reverend Perry, I can see that your, your synapses twirling so 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 so, so ju- jump in well i i was wondering uh whether or not dr timothy leary uh during the time you were doing this study he was really i mean there was really a revolution it seems to me with regard to these um experimental drugs um and there was really a pushback on both sides right. um I, I'm wondering, were you influenced at all by by that <laughs> that period of time? You know, it, it, it I was um, uh, it was certainly an exciting time to live through those late sixties, and um, but I I took the lesson of what happened to Timothy Leary and and all of those people very seriously. So we all saw, all of America saw you know, the hippies and the Grateful Dead and use of LSD and other drugs uh, and and um, and uh, linked to a kind of search for spirituality. But what was not really appreciated was that there had been the beginnings of rigorous, careful research with those medications like LSD and, and psilocybin as a treatment for depression. And when the drug enforcement uh, agency, I guess DEA, and the FDA clamped down on drugs like LSD and psilocybin because of the recreational use, they also shut down um, the uh, the uh, testing of drugs like LSD and psilocybin uh, for treatment. And so um, all of that work was almost completely shut down, certainly in the United States, from early 1970s up into the early 1990s, when for the first time um, uh, uh, people started to try to be able to test psilocybin and related drugs again in people. And and what's interesting is that um, one of the I would say maybe unintended consequences of showing the antidepressant effects of ketamine, which has, as I mentioned, kind of it, it produces a 
changes in perception and feelings of un unreality, other things like that, was that other uh, people started testing um, other drugs like psilocybin as treatments for depression to um, revisiting the, the literature from the 1960s and trying to do that work in a more rigorous way. So there was just uh, a few days ago published in the New England Journal of Medicine, a paper about psilocybin as having antidepressant effects. So um, what happened was, and, and this is something that, that I think my colleagues and I take to heart is how careful and cautious we have to be in the testing of these drugs and the way in which they're administered and, and how specific and, and rigorous we are in the research so that, um, that uh, we don't trigger a backlash because uh, uh, if this, if it uh, gets, if addiction with uh, problems or abuse problems with these drugs became too big of an issue, it would clearly have a negative effect on the possibility of getting access to ketamine or uh, other treatments that might be uh, developed. So we, we, I take that very seriously. It's both, in a way, an inspiration, this notion of consciousness expansion and spirituality, but also a cautionary tale about how easily that can trigger um, a negative pushback. So is ketamine a drug that you would use like for the rest of your life? That's one question um, yeah. as a kind of maintenance. So you never really get off of it, but it helps you. And then what about that? Like you were talking about other drugs, like some people have said that about marijuana since the seventies are about uh, some of the other like mushrooms and other drugs. Yeah. Uh, if a person is taking ketamine and would they, would there be a cautionary note about them taking any other drugs that dealt with that kind of? Yeah. So, you know, my view of these, all of these medications is that they're very different. They have very different impacts on people's lives when they're used in a therapeutic setting that's very controlled and very supported um, than if they're used recreationally. Uh, the the very same experience uh, in the when, when people are around you helping to organize your thoughts and experiences, um, can, it can be very very stressful, even traumatic, to have similar kinds of experiences when you're on your own and confused and 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 don't know what's happening to you. I mean, people have pr profound changes in their sense of of themselves and their relationship to the environment. Now with ketamine, which is a very short acting drug, that those kinds of experiences only last about a half hour um, when, when administered uh, typically. But some of the other drugs that are administered, like psilocybin, uh, those states can last for six hours. And LSD, it can last 10 or 12 hours even from, from a single dose. And that, um, that's a really long time to be in an altered state of consciousness, particularly when if you're finding it scary. So it's not surprising that when used recreationally, you hear a lot of stories about bad trips and you hear about flashbacks. And flashbacks are, as you know, a symptom of post-traumatic stress disorder and maybe for some people a sign that they had that they had a really bad, scary experience on the drug. So, um, uh, so we we um, we really focus on 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 trying to structure treatment in a very careful way. That being said, ketamine treatment is really different than than almost any other uh, treatment that you can think of in psychiatry. The goal of ketamine treatment is to give it as infrequently as possible rather mm -hmm. than as frequently as possible. Mm -hmm. So generally, when people start ketamine, they start uh, getting it twice a week. Now, uh, and that's because when a person gets their first dose of ketamine, it typically lasts between, the antidepressant typically lasts between three to seven days. Even though the effects of the drug only last about an hour or hour and a half, the antidepressant effects come on after a few hours and, and then last for a few days. But so people will start twice a week. Then after several weeks, they'll go to once a week. 
and then maybe they'll go to every other week. And if they're um, um, if they're in a, uh, in an ongoing treatment, uh, um, let, let me just take a step back, which is to say that, that ketamine is pretty much only administered to people who are already in psychiatry treatment, Ooh. have already been treated with different kinds of psychotherapy and different kinds of medications and failed. So nobody's getting ketamine to start off with, uh, almost nobody. And, and almost everybody's getting ketamine in the context of being in an ongoing treatment where things just haven't worked out as, as hoped. And so for, for, for some people, they'll get maybe six months of ketamine treatment. And then um, in, in the context of their ongoing other treatment, and then they find they don't need the ketamine anymore. Other people will find that they can't sustain the improvement in mood unless they get booster doses of ketamine. And they may get those booster doses every three weeks, once a month, uh, a little more or a little less frequently. Um, but the idea is uh, to um, give as little ketamine over time as possible. And, and in that context where people are getting very few doses of ketamine, and spreading them out over time, um, the antidepressant effects seem to uh, be sustained over long periods of time, and 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 that that's optimal. And and um, and what's interesting about ketamine is that if someone were to take ketamine every day, you would probably get tolerant to the effects of ketamine, and and people who abuse ketamine and recreationally use ketamine and take ketamine every day in in robust doses they um they tend to um uh, be more likely to get depressed <laughs> from that kind of recreational use of ketamine so we're really using ketamine to ping the system and we may get to this in the discussion about why pinging the glutamate system may may help to uh, recruit the brain's own capacity for resilience. Um, whereas uh, everyday use of ketamine may not be that good for the brain. I have just one question. The, um, I've seen people take Welbutrin as a kind of ongoing kind of a treatment. So when, when I hear you talking about ketamine, I'm wondering, are these people more suicidal or more um, or the depression is such, uh, at such a level that you said it's not for everyone. So for the people that it is for, uh, who are they? Yeah, yeah. So Wellbutrin is related. Wellbutrin is uh, uh, um, uh, uh, is related to the standard classes of antidepressants that you have to take every day. So we we generally have three main classes of antidepressants. Antidepressants that target the serotonin system, those are called SSRIs or serotonin reuptake inhibitors because they they raise the level of serotonin in the synapse, in other words, the communication between nerve cells. And um, those are drugs like um, Prozac, or sertraline, or uh, 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 Zoloft, um, uh, Paxil. Then you have drugs like bupropion that affect more the norepinephrine system, like noradrenaline. And, um, and then you have drugs that affect serotonin and norepinephrine. Those are called SNRIs. That's like um, uh, the, the uh, uh, venlafaxine is called Effexor and duloxetine, another SNRI. But with all of these kinds of antidepressant medications, um, you need to take them every day. And, and the reason you need to take them every day is, there's, is twofold. One is that the antidepressant effects depend on sustaining the exposure of the brain to norepinephrine or serotonin. And if you while you're taking, we, these are studies that were done at Yale in the, in the 1980s and 1990s. If you, if you temporarily lower the level of serotonin 
or norepinephrine in the body while you're taking one of these medications, you can temporarily uh, uh, cause a re return of depression symptoms. So th the ability of these medications to work depends on taking them every day and sustaining the exposure of the brain to these you know, chemical messengers. The other reason they have to be taken every day is because you're taking them every day, your brain becomes dependent in a way on them. Ooh. So if you abruptly stop the medication, like a Prozac, like a Zoloft, then you can get withdrawal symptoms uh, that are unpleasant, headaches, uh, feelings of electric shock, or uh, uh, very extreme tiredness or a, a, a return of depression. So if you're taking a medication like Welbutrin, like Zoloft, like uh, 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 Effexor, and you've been taking it every day for a while, then you have to taper it down and not just stop all at once. Otherwise, um, you can get with withdrawal symptoms. Doctor, uh, John, one of the other, when I was a student, uh, some of my classmates at the Yale, when they got depressed, yeah. they would go to the Yale Center. Yeah. And I went to see one, and uh, they'd given him Thorazine. Yeah. And my God, he swole up, he froze up. And I kept thinking, why would anybody give anybody this drug? Are they still doing that with Thorazine? Yeah. You know, um, w one of the things that, I, that, that you learn as a psychiatrist is both the art and the science of those medications. And, and with certain medications, it's not just the medication itself, but how you use it. So Thorazine, for example, is a medication that if you start at too, too much of a dose right away, that people are likely to get side effects. And if you're, particularly if you're treating young men and you start a high dose of Thorazine, then we nowadays, we almost always give another medication along with the Thorazine in order to prevent the emergence of the side effects that you're describing. So we can pretty well make Thorazine a much more tolerable um, uh, uh, medication now than it was back in the day. And, um, and also the ideas of treatment have evolved. And they've evolved from as a result of brain imaging research where we can actually measure in the brain the availability of the targets for a drug like uh, Thorazine in the brain. The, the targets are called the dopamine D2 receptor. And so we've learned, we used to think, you know, that the tendency in medicine has always been more is better. Like if, if, uh, if one aspirin is good, then two aspirin is going to be better. It turns out with Thorazine, more is not always better. And that what we're trying, what we try to do is to um, block about 60 to 80% of the dopamine D2 receptors with Thorazine. Because when that happens, if you have schizophrenia, then the amount of uh, dopamine stimulation uh, of dopamine D2 receptors is, is about normal. In the old days, we used to go up to 100% blockade of the dopamine D2 receptors. And so we were producing side effects of dopamine deficiency in people um, out of a misguided notion about how these drugs worked and, and how they helped people. And so now we don't even try to give the doses that we did in the old days. And we, and we are shooting for a lower target. And so that makes the medications better tolerated and safer. And it makes them more willing, makes people more willing to take drugs like that. Because who would want to take a medication that made you feel slowed down and, and stiff or whatever the side effects that, that you saw? And that's, that's proven really important because some of these medications like Thorazine can sometimes be added on to a medication like Prozac or Zoloft when a person isn't responding. And a very common path that people follow in order to become eligible for ketamine is to first go on a medication like Zoloft or, or Paxil or Prozac. And if they don't respond very well, maybe they switch to a different one. Maybe they switch to the Wellbutrin 
or maybe they switch to the effexor, switching from serotonin to something targeting norepinephrine. And if that doesn't work, then oftentimes something like Thorazine will be added. And if that doesn't work, where do you go next? That's where something like ketamine can come in. Because one of the one of the things that used to happen, which which we've learned was, you know, um, um, uh, uh, unfortunate, was that uh, patients and doctors together would kind of give up. In other words, people would say, um, I've, I've been on Prozac. It didn't do anything for me. Medications aren't going to do anything for me. And so then they'd spend years depressed, not able to focus, not fully in their families, not you know, they, when people are depressed, they often lose hope. They lose connection to the spiritual drive that keeps them going that we were talking about earlier. That depression just saps that, that experience from people and makes it hard to be connected. And, um, and some of those people, all they needed was that next step in treatment. They would have responded to the addition of Thorazine. And nowadays we have ketamine or esketamine, which is the the intranasal version um, that can help many people who are struggling with depression, have been treated for depression, but still haven't gotten better. What is that in, intranasal thing? Something you s- swipe the nose with, or you like a spray? Or... Yeah, it's a, it's um, it's a it's really very clever. <laughs> um, well, it's the kind of thing that. You know, it, 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 we like in research when when someone solves a problem in a creative way. So we give ketamine, the regular ketamine, intravenously because the body chews up ketamine very quickly. Um, and so, um, as ketamine, when it was developed, they wondered: is there a way to get enough ketamine into the body? Um, and uh, uh, without having to give enormous doses of ketamine orally and um and what they what they figured out was that if they could get the ketamine into the sinus uh then the the sinus the nasal sinus is very good at absorbing compounds and and avoiding the metabolism the first uh, round of metabolism in the body so that they could give a relatively low amount of ketamine give it through the nasal spray and get high levels of ketamine into the brain needed to, to treat depression. And, and that's really important because ketamine works in a kind of a dose, a narrow dose range. Too little, it doesn't work. Too much, you get more side effects, but you don't necessarily get more benefit. So uh, either through the intravenous infusion or through the, the nasal spay, spray that was developed by uh, Janssen Pharmaceuticals with S-ketamine, uh, you could you can get good absorption. We have about thirteen minutes, so let's kind of brainstorm. Or <laughs> things. There's so many questions I want to ask, uh, Doctor Crystal. Kind of piggybacking on uh, Reverend Perry's uh, comments about the various types of treatments. How does how does a person? What's what's the process? Does your primary care person recommend you? You you've talked about some of the hurdles, and I'm sure some of my listeners are saying, "Why do I have to jump over these hurdles? Why can't I just go for the gold immediately yeah. with, with with ketamine?" So maybe kind of. Share yeah. a little bit about that. Right. So, so let, let me address that first, because, um, you know, I, uh, it, the, the temptation is to view something that works in this uh, treatment-resistant context as just better. And we don't really know that ketamine is just better. Um, and in fact, um, uh, it, 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 when we've looked at mild depression, ketamine does not appear to be particularly effective. So it's really distinctively effective um, when people have uh, not responded to other Mm. kinds of antidepressant treatment. So then that means you have to kind of follow um, the path of depression treatment. It means getting connected. Uh, Oftentimes people are getting their first trial of uh, ketamine from their family doctor, not ketamine. Uh, the first trial of, anti- of an antidepressant. In other words, they 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 go to their family doctor or their nurse practitioner, and they say, you know, I've been feeling really down. I can't sleep. I can't eat. I've got no appetite. I don't feel like doing anything. And the and and the doctor or the nurse will start them on something like um, like Prozac, 
and and they're on it for uh, a month or so, uh, and they haven't gotten better. They're not really uh, experiencing any change. Often at that point, it's really helpful to either get consultation from a psychiatrist or to get referred to a psychiatrist. And um, and uh, because it's really the psychiatrists that are most comfortable combining medications, switching medications. Um, that's our that's our bread and butter. That's what we do every day. And and um, and so getting connected to a psychiatrist at that point, whether it's in a community clinic or a private psychiatrist, whatever, whatever, uh, whoever, and then going that next step or two where you try a new antidepressant or something is added to your antidepressant. The psychiatrists also are better connected to the to the programs for um, treatment resistant symptoms of depression. So, um, so for example, there is a program at Yale New Haven Hospital. It's called the Interventional Psychiatry Program. And it's one of the busiest programs that we have. And the Interventional Psychiatry Program offers um, the treatments for patients who don't respond that well to other antidepressant medications. So they administer ketamine and esketamine and they administer um, electroconvulsive uh, therapy. In other words, the brain stimulation treatment. And they also offer something called transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is stimulating the brain with the magnet rather than electricity. Um, and, um, And this clinic is very busy and very oversubscribed, but the way that they work is people have to be in an ongoing treatment uh, where that's not working out, and 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 then involvement in the interventional psychiatry program is added to uh, mm-hmm. their ongoing treatment. And but the interventional psychiatry service at Yale New Haven accepts referrals from all uh, practitioners, and um, and uh, you know sometimes it's hard to keep up with uh, with the wait list, either for the ketamine or esketamine treatment or for the um, for the brain stimulation treatments, but but they do the best they can. I think one of the problems that we have in in America is that there aren't uh, 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 clinics like the Interventional Psychiatry Service all, in in all cities. In, in interventional psychiatry, our our program will treat people who have insurance, people who have Medicaid, Medicare, um, but oftentimes because of the way that uh, a uh, relatively poor way that Medicare and Medicaid reimburse uh, treatment. A lot of um, programs that were set up to provide uh, ketamine and esketamine uh, treatment around the country have not um, taken patients with Medicare and Medicaid. And that's a huge problem and, and a real issue for how we develop treatments in this com- country. Mm-hmm. Sometimes uh, the people who need them the most have trouble uh, getting access to them. And that's that's something I think we all need to work together to change. Reverend Perry. I think that that was my question. <laughs> How do poor people and marginalized people and people who, can't, who, who just don't have the uh, income level to, to get this treatment? I think that's, that's sad. I'm glad to hear about this uh, interventional uh, psychiatric program that that's in New Haven, and uh, I guess we can. That's one way we can get the word out to people. See, here's the other thing, John. It just seems to me, if if I, I once took a, a young lady who was hooked on drugs, we tried everything to get her to stop. And I took her to see a psychiatrist. This was in White Plains, New York, many years ago. the The cost was four hundred dollars an hour. After after $1,200, the doctor said to her, I don't think you want to live. So you're wasting my time because I tell you what to do. You're not doing it. So now I'm at $1,200. And, you know, it's just like, but only if I couldn't afford $1,200, if I couldn't afford $400, the emergency room could not really deal with the issue because it's something that, that, is, that takes time and a, a probing of the mind and an understanding. So, you know, I think this is a, this is really a problem for all of us. Um, 
I don't know if there is a solution to it. I don't know if a major school like Yale might be able to set up a kind of uh, doorway by which uh, individuals could somehow get the treatment that's necessary, you know, and because right. the suicide rate, the death rate, um, the just the just the human uh, bondage that's out there that could be uh, maybe saved is lost. Yeah. Well, there's there's so much there's so much in what you said, Reverend Perry, and uh, 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 you know uh, that that I'd I'd like to unpack some of it. One is that that um, people need to know that there are many doors in the New Haven area to get access to treatment. There's the the, the uh, there's the Cornell Scott Hill Health Center uh, psychiatry clinic. There's the Connecticut Mental Health Center which is um uh takes uh you know all, anyone uh and um and uh, obviously v- veterans c- have access to the to the VA the VA Connecticut healthcare system um and and the VA has its own program for ketamine and S ketamine um so veterans can uh, get access to ketamine uh through the VA hospital in West Haven um and and obviously Yale New Haven. So that's that's really important for people to know that there are lots of doors and lots of ways that that they can get connected. The second thing is that it it it's um it's best to get help early. In other words, when you feel the depression coming on and you think you need help, uh that's the that's the time to get connected. Find a counselor, find an you know Find a therapist, find a clinic, find somebody to get connected and get support you need early in the course so that you don't have to be in an extreme situation where getting help is a life and death matter and and where you need to come to the emergency room. Because the emergency room is a place, it's a gateway, as you point out, the emergency room is a gateway to getting urgent help. Like if you need, if you need to come into the hospital, if you need to get a, a referral somewhere, of course, you know that's emergency room is great. But it's so much better and so much less stressful if if people can find paths that get them to the clinics before they need to go to the emergency room. Because we all nobody likes to go to emergency room. There's flashing lights and crowded people and people rushing about. It's not. It's not conducive to the kind of building the kind of relationships that that you're talking about. The third thing you said, which is extremely important, which I I can't stress enough, which is that that the system of mental health care in the United States is broken, and and um, that um, that uh, Medicare Medicaid reimburse uh, at such a low level that. Um, it's really hard for oftentimes for people to find in the community a, a clinic, a, a clinician who will see them with Medicare and Medicaid. And, um, and, but it's not hard to find uh, an internist. It's not hard to find a surgeon when you need one. It's hard to find a therapist or a psychiatrist who will, who will treat you because it's such a uh, it's reimbursed treatment is reimbursed at such a lower level that that uh, uh, too many mental health practitioners uh, go into the private space. It's a it's a national problem. It's one we need to figure out how we're going to solve. Um, and um, and uh, and and it, it's just it's just really um, un- unfortunate. Um, Gentlemen, we have about about two more minutes and. Just want to jump in, Doctor Crystal, about it. I would be, I would, after if the show ended at, and if, and if I didn't ask a question about research and participation in clinical trials, I would have regret and have to go into a psychiatric clinic tomorrow because I'd be going crazy. But just as we conclude, and we have about ninety seconds, talk to us about the research and participate, the importance of research and participation in clinical trials. Yeah. Well, first, every time I come on the show. 
I think we begin the conversation for another visit. So Indeed. The, the, there's a method to our madness. <laughs> the, 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 the second thing I would say is that none of what I've talked about today, none of the antidepressant medications, we wouldn't have ketamine. All of this research is, a, is really a result of the incredible um, generosity of people who have volunteered to participate in research and who have helped together to generate this knowledge that we hope is now circling back and feeding back and providing um, improvement. You know, some of this research was very basic. It took years and years for this work, work to be really uh, clinically applicable. Uh, and so people participating in brain scans and people participating in genetic studies and, and all of that bring us to the point where we have the new treatments. and. and and um, so I, I encourage and am grateful for people who wish to join this kind of research effort by uh, volunteering. And the best way for folks to participate and, and jump into this clinical research stream, be, be swim, swimming in their way toward health? Yeah. So if, if people want to get referred to, to research, I'm happy to, they can call my office um, uh, or write, send me an email. My, my email address is john, J-O-H-N dot crystal, K-R-Y-S-T-A-L at Yale, Y-A-L-E dot E-D-U. And I will help you get connected to, to, uh, people who are doing research on the topic of interest. Excellent. Gentlemen, thank you so much. Thank you so much. So as you say, un, as Reverend Perry would say, until then, until the next time, Dr. Christian. <laughs> as I got another rhyme, another rhythm for y'all to listen. I'm never quitting on my mission. I'm going to roll with what I'm giving. Got some ambition, this new edition, filling positions. Looking at the void in myself and feeling what's missing. Better watch the way you're going. Better go in the right direction. In the moment, you stressing, but you're going to be counting blessings. And I know that for certain. Keep on working, open curtains. Haters swerving because they ain't ready for your final version. Whoa. I'm never going to give up. Give up, fall down, I just gotta get up, get up, yeah. Cause this is my road, less camera action, I'm ready to go. I'm never gonna give up, give up, fall down, I just gotta get up, get up, yeah. Yeah, this is my road, less camera action, I'm ready to go. Now you gon' face the dawn you waited for I said from night to dawn I write my wrongs alarm In competition with warnings Ice galore Now I'm running toward that My life's unfinished Being a quitter But little, little by little They joking, telling some riddles Now I'm in my section Ain't willing to give up Know you getting knocked down But you gotta get up I'm never gonna give up, give up Fall down, I just gotta get up, get up, yeah. Cause this is my road Let's camera action I'm ready to go I'm never gonna give up, give up, fall down, I just gotta get up, get up.